0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. It's been a while since we've uh, been in Genesis. We had uh, a memorial service and then... One of our missionaries came and preached for us, which was a a great privilege to to hear him and hear what the Lord is doing there in Parle. But uh, since it's been a while since we've been in Genesis, let's just think back for a minute about where we've been in this this book. Um, First, we saw how, with Abram's story at least, how God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. God promises him descendants and land, and promises to make his name great, Abram's name great. Remember how those who were at Babel, they said, let's make a name for ourselves, and God brought that to nothing, because they were trying to make a name for themselves apart from God. They are going to say, we can reach into the heavens on our own. We don't need God. We will bring God down, is really what they were saying. But God says to Abram, he says, follow me, obey me, and I will make your name Great. I will give you these descendants. I will turn you into a people and I will give you the land. Abram initially does believe God and he obeys God. He actually shows extreme like faith. And without even knowing where he was going exactly, he follows God and he goes. But there are definitely times when he doubts God's ability to keep the promises. In chapter 16, we see Abram and Sarai acting as if they do not believe God could fulfill his end of the bargain without their help. They come up with a plan of how they're going to help God keep the promise of offspring, of children. And so Sarai gives her servant Hagar to to Abram as a wife. And Ishmael is born to Abram. But even in that broken story, which we studied about three weeks ago, even in that story, we hear the words of God to his people And God in that story says, I am the living one. I'm not like these other false gods who are just statues. They can't hear. They can't act. They can't see. No, I am the living one who hears and sees. And he implies with that that he hears and he sees and that he is acting for their good. We saw that just in the previous chapter. Now we come to chapter 17. In Genesis, and we find that 13 years have passed by in Genesis 17. The writer of Genesis is silent about these 13 years, but we can assume that Abram continues to lead his household over the, a household of over 100 people as a priest king, which we saw in the Melchizedek story, how he is leading his family before God as a priest king. For the past 13 years, Abram has also raised Ishmael, this son of Hagar. He has raised Ishmael as his only son. Our passage today implies that Abram hoped and assumed that Ishmael would be the child of promise. The one God would use to fulfill the promises, the promise of descendants and the promise of Blessing to this future nation, Abram assumed and hoped that Ishmael was the answer. With this in mind, let's go ahead to Genesis 17 and let's read the passage together. Now, I, I realize this is a longer piece of scripture and that um, listening to someone read a whole chapter of the Bible may feel tedious, but fo- flow with me through this story. This is a story, this is an, a true account of how God. Speaks to Abram, Abram's responses, human responses to God's promises, and then how Abram obeys God. Beginning in verse 1 in Genesis 17, we read this When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, Or bought with his money every male among the men of Abram's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abram and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's go to the Lord and pray and ask Him to help us as we seek to rejoice as Christians in this story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is deep and it is wide with truth. You call it a treasure chest. It is a treasure that we can mine deeply into and we will not exhaust Your Word. There is great hope and joy to be found and how you have revealed yourself to your people. And I pray that this morning, every person sitting here, every single person would be able to walk out of here saying that God is good. God is faithful. He is better than life itself. I pray that that would be true for everyone here. Would your Holy Spirit do that for your glory and for the good of all those here this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So in this story, we we see right at the very beginning that for 13 years, Abram and Sarai lived in a state of tension between faith and doubt. God promised them a son, but they had grown impatient and made a plan to help God out. It may have seemed like a good idea at first. We're talking about how they helped God out by Sarai giving Hagar to Abram as a a second wife. It may have seemed like a good idea at the time, but doubting God and coming up with a human solution to the divine promises always creates tension and never increases a believer's faith. Instead, doubt, when we act in doubt, and if it is left unchecked, it always produces more doubt and unbelief. But when Abram is 99 years old, 13 years after this this act of doubt after that we see that God appears to Abram and confirms the promises by the giving of four unique names so we're going to look at the four names that God gave in this passage first God reveals himself saying I am God Almighty He is the God who does not need human intervention. He does not need Abram and and Sarai's help by coming up with this plan for a second wife. No, he is God Almighty. In the Hebrew, this this name of God is El Shaddai, El God Shaddai Almighty, God Almighty. He says, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. To be almighty points to God's supreme and unchallenged power to do whatever he wants to do in the created universe. Whether it's things we can see or things we can't see, visible or invisible. Whether it's natural or supernatural, it does not matter. With this name, God challenges Abram's and Abram and Sarai's doubt that God could give them children through Sarai. God's challenging their their wavering faith about whether or not God could and would give Sarai a son. God is calling Abram to have unwavering faith in him because he is God Almighty. He is the God who created the womb in the first place. He is the one who forms every single baby in the womb. And he is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Hebrews 1 verse 3. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Is there anything too difficult, too hard for the Lord? Is there anything? Whether God promises to give a 90 year old woman a son or whether God promises to place the son of God in the womb of a virgin, it makes no difference because nothing will be impossible with God. That's what the angel said to Mary when he prophesied that a son would be born to a virgin, that he would be called the son of the highest. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115. The second name that God gives is to Abram. Abram's birth name means exalted father. So Abram Exalted father or the father is exalted and possibly wasn't even describing Abram, but instead was describing Abram's father or was speaking about God as the father. The father is exalted. But either way, he wasn't speaking about Abram. But now God gives Abram a new name that describes who God is going to make out of Abraham. Abram. Verse 4 in our passage says this, Behold, God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham means father of a multitude. Father of a multitude. Not only would Abraham have many descendants, But he would be the father of a multitude of nations. His children would grow into nations and kings would come from him. We know from the Old Testament record that God did physically fulfill this. Many nations did come from Abram and kings did come from his body. But ultimately... The New Testament reveals that Abraham would become the father of people from every nation on earth. Galatians 3, verse 7 through 9 tells us this, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those of faith. He's talking about those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, it does not matter, those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed. This is even before our passage in chapter 17. He's saying in you all in you shall all the nations be blessed. And yes, we know he's talking about the Messiah would come and the Messiah would bring a blessing to all peoples. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. So yes, the Messiah comes and we belong to the Messiah, a child of Abraham. But then also think about this, Romans 4, verse 16 through 17, Paul tells us that receiving the promise of Abraham depends on faith. It depends on faith. In order that the promise, he's talking about the promises made to Abraham about being their God and and the, and the people being God's people, He's saying the promise rests on grace and may be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law. He's talking about not only to Jews, not only to Jews, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul here is writing to a Gentile church, and he calls Abraham the father of us all, because we have believed in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Here we see Paul writing to a Gentile church, saying that this passage from Genesis 17, where we're at today, God says, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, or of many nations. Paul is saying that this is being fulfilled to Gentiles, and that through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, Gentiles have been made sons of Abraham, and God is fulfilling His word through Jesus Christ, and the inclusion of Of Gentiles, which Gentiles just means anyone who's not a Jew. That's what he's talking about. He's saying you're not a Jew. It used to be a derogative statement to say they're the Gentiles, they're the people without God. But now it means those who, if they come by faith, are included as sons of Abraham. Isn't this beautiful? Please see how beautiful these words are that say, I have made you. God speaking to Abraham, I have made you. He's talking about in the past tense because he's saying it's it's as good as done because I am God Almighty. And when I say it's going to happen, it will happen. He says to Abraham, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Yes, many nations were physically descended from Abraham. There was a physical fulfillment to this. And yes, God worked through Israel to bring the Messiah. But when the Messiah died for the sins of the world, not just the sins of Jewish believers, when the Messiah died for whoever would believe in Him, when He did that, He opened the door for people from every tribe, language, and tongue to enter into the family of Abraham, which means the family of God, God's people. And that is exactly what God says will happen. Jesus didn't just make it possible, He did make it possible, but God says He will make this happen that people from every tribe, language, and tongue will enter in and become sons of Abraham. In Revelation 7, Verses 9 through 10, we see God's goal for how He says He will be worshipped for all eternity. John tells us this in his vision of heaven at the end of the ages, Revelation 7 verse 9. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Sounds a lot like trying to count the stars or count the sand on the seashore This language God uses when he's talking to Abram about the nations, he says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. They've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. With palm branches in their hands. They're standing there ready to worship. And they're crying out. Verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice. This is what the multitude of people say. Salvation belongs to our God. Who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. This is what God's talking about. All the way back in Genesis 17. That He is going to make Abraham. The father of faith. He's going to make him the father of a multitude of nations. Before the end comes, God will call people from every nation to become sons of Abraham by faith. And God says to every son and daughter of Abraham who comes to God by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, God says, my covenant is with you. My covenant is with you because I am am your God you are my people just as he promised to Abraham this is what it means to receive the promise of Abraham it means to be included in the family of Abraham which means to be part of the family of God a child of God and if you are sitting here this morning as a blood-bought child of God a child of Abraham a son of Abraham then God says to you my covenant is with you. I am yours. God says to us, He says, I belong to you. I am your God, and you are mine. You are my people. And the story of the Bible could be summarized this way. God is showing throughout the whole Bible that He will save His people. That's the beauty of the promises. God says to Abrams, the children of Abram who are Sons of Abraham, which just means sons or daughters, those who who inherit with Abraham. He's saying to those children of Abraham, you are my people, I am your God. And then the rest of the Bible is saying that God will save his people. That's why this is beautiful to be included in this promise, the promises to Abraham. That God is not done confirming the promises to Abraham. God gives a third name, changing Sarai's name to Sarah. The shift is subtle. And the names just really mean pretty much the same thing. Sarai means princess and Sarah means princess. But Sarai most likely should be read this way as my princess. Sarai, her original name is my princess, which is probably a name given by a loving father, to his daughter, saying, You are my princess, kind of kind of idea. But the best way to understand the meaning of Sarah, her new name, is by saying the princess. Which implies that she would be the mother of nations and kings. These these names mean princess. But God goes on to confirm what he means by this new name. He says in verse 16, I, right after giving her this new name, he says, I will bless Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. She is the princess whom God will bless in this way. She will be the mother of kings, and one day the mother of the king who would come. This must come as shocking news to Abraham because up until this point, as we saw, for 13 years, he's been thinking that Ishmael is the child of promise. The first of his descendants who would receive the promises of God, who would walk with God. Abraham even laughs in momentary disbelief and shock that Sarah could possibly give birth to a son at 90 years old. And he offers God a simpler solution. And I can, I can hear him speaking as a father who does love Ishmael. Ishmael's 13 now and he loves, loves him. And Abram says in verse 18, he says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's asking God to accept Ishmael and to make his covenant with him. But God says in verse 19, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God didn't need Abram and Sarah's help. He didn't need their sinful, doubting intervention for his promises to be fulfilled. And think about how we see this playing itself out in our day Today, think about the church. Jesus has promised he sa- by saying, I will build my church. That's what Jesus said as he departs. I will build my church. He's saying, I am God Almighty and I will build my church. But think about all the craziness we see around us in places that call themselves churches as they try to build God's church for him in ways that he forbid, in ways that are dishonoring to him. It's more like we're turning into a rock concert as we try to build God's church for him rather than caring about those who come by faith. Rather, we're trying to draw people by pleasing their passions rather than drawing people who come to God by faith. That's just... One example, but there are many ways that we can look at the promises of God to us, and we can try and find a better way, or a shorter way, or a less painful way. And God says, "I am not pleased when my when my children doubt me. Instead, I am pleased when they trust and wait upon me to show them how I am going to fulfill my promises." And God uses a fourth name here. To confirm this promise to Abram and to show Abram that he is God Almighty, God as El Shaddai. Because Abram laughs at the thought of a 90 year old woman and a 100 year old man having a son, God tells Abram to name Sarah's son Isaac, which means he laughs. He laughs, or laughter. Abram had laughed at the promise. And in chapter 18, we'll see that when Sarah hears about this promise, she also laughs. But then, after Isaac is born a year later, after Isaac is born and God's promise is fulfilled, Sarah will look back and say this in Genesis verse, chapter 21. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 6, Sarah says this, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She's saying that where I had sorrow and where I kind of like laughed in doubt, that was who I was, sorrowful and doubting. But God has put laughter into my life and heart. And everyone who hears about God's great grace and mercy towards me, they're going to laugh In joy and wonder in the God Almighty who kept His promise to me. The promise of God to Abram and Abraham and Sarah were so wonderful that they struggled to believe them. They struggled to hope in God and wait upon the Lord when so much time seemed to be going by. Their own doubting attempts to help God out had only created sorrow. And more pain but God steps onto the scene once again and reminds them that he is the promise-keeping God that there is nothing too difficult for him and that he will turn their sorrow into laughter and after all that's the promise given to us his people he promises to every single one of his children that if we wait upon the Lord, He will renew our strength, and in the end, He will wipe away every tear from your eye. That's Revelation seven verse 17. He says that when we come and stand before Him in the, 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 the warmth and the, the presence of His glory, he says that he will wipe away every tear from your eye, and your sorrow, and whatever pain you struggled with in this life, that it will be gone. It will be a fading memory that fades away. We saw how God uses four names to um, show and to confirm the promise. But there is something else that God does to show Abraham that his covenant was with Abraham and with his descendants. God gives Abraham a physical sign of the promise, a sign of the covenant by giving circumcision. God commands Abraham and his descendants after him to physically mark every male in their household with the sign of circumcision, which, yes, I know, it's weird for us to talk about this as modern day like western thinkings like the idea of circumcision so I even heard of some people who are like they didn't even know what that, was, what that was and so it's the cutting away of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ let's just leave it at that for right now but it is gross it's weird it's intimate it's, it's painful I watched my son be circumcised for health reasons not religious reasons for health reasons I watched him be circumcised and I almost had to run out of the room if I knew what it was gonna be like, I would have said, nope, I can't go through that. I can't watch him go through that. It's it's painful. It's 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 this bloody cutting away ritual that you're just like, man, many people are just so offended that it was ever even a thing. So we kind of look back, it's like, why? Why did God give circumcision? Well, I'd, I'd like to suggest at least three reasons. There's, it's possible there's, there's other things going on here. But I'd like to suggest that circumcision was designed by God to remind Jewish men and their wives of several things. First, it is a physical reminder that God is the one who will increase the descendants of Abraham and make them into a great nation. God is the one who's going to increase the fruit of the womb. He is the one who created the womb and the one who knits every baby together and the one who will increase Israel from nomads who are just wandering in Canaan into a great nation. So this is a reminder to them that God is the one who blesses the fruit of the womb. Second, circumcision symbolized being set apart unto God. Some other nations even practice circumcision as well, like even before this possibly within the priesthood of their nation where they would circumcise the priesthood as a physical sign of them being cut off from any type of like worldliness and set apart unto their God, until their idolatry. But when God gives his instructions, he says that he wants every male in the nation of Israel to be circumcised which was meant to, to to show that Israel was to be a people, an entire people who were set apart unto God their entire lives. God had chosen them as a people for himself out of all the nations. They were to cut off the wickedness and the, and the idolatry of the nations and they were to be set apart unto God. But third and most importantly, circumcision reminded Israelites of the consequences of breaking the covenant of unfaithfulness to God. Just as the cut off piece of skin was thrown away and died, just so an Israelite would be cut off and die without God if they were unfaithful to the covenant. That's the picture. As you read through the Old Testament, this language of being cut off It frequently shows up. Even in our passage today, we see this imagery. If you look in verse 14, it says here that God says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, pretty much saying, I don't need God's sign. I don't need to obey God. That sounds gross. I don't want that. If the Israelite said that, he says, That man shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The picture is clear. God says, Keep my commandments. In this case, cut off the skin and throw it away, or I will cut you off from my people and cast you away. That's the consequences of rebellion. That's the consequences of unfaithfulness to the the covenant. And when God gives Israel the laws of Moses at Mount Sinai several times, the consequences for breaking God's laws with with a high hand or with a flagrant, rebellious attitude... Those sins, and the consequence for those sins was that the offender was cut off from God's people. It uses that phrase, implying that they were to be cast out and that they stood condemned and guilty before God. We have to keep in mind that this is covenant language. And it was common in Eastern thinking. It was natural for them to say things like, "Let's" when they're going to make an agreement, especially an important, significant one, they would say things like, let's... Let us cut a covenant, which means that that they are saying let's cut animals in two and let's walk between them as a physical sign that if either one of us break this covenant, we're now agreeing about that we deserve to be cut in two like these animals. And we saw God do this just a couple chapters before in Genesis 15. God walks between the animal carcasses as a sign to Abraham That God agreed to be cut in two if his covenant with Abraham was not kept. That's Genesis 15 that we looked at. The penalty for covenant breaking is to be cut in two or to be cut off and thrown away. It's condemnation. And that is what circumcision is supposed to represent. God gives Israelites a physical sign of His covenant with them to be their God and for Israel to be His people. And that if you you cast off or you disregard the covenant of God, you are to be cut off and cast off from God and His people. But as the biblical narrative continues, We will see that Israelites are sometimes, they're pretty good at keeping these physical signs. They are pretty good at physically circumcising their sons. They keep many of the physical laws, but they fail to obey the goal of the commandments or the thing that that the signs pointed to, which is that God's people were to love God with all their hearts. They are to be separated from the wickedness of the world and they were to love God With all of their hearts. That's what this was supposed to point to. For example, we we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Moses speaks to Israel. They are now a nation, they've come out of Egypt. and, And Moses speaks to them saying this And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways? to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers. Talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after you. You above all peoples as you are this day. They are his special people. And then in verse 16, Moses says this. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That was the point of it all. Is that their hearts would be that the, in their heart the wickedness of their heart would be cut off and thrown away so that they could wholly with without restraint love the Lord their God and love his way and follow him and live for him and be his people Israel had some success following the physical commands but the people ultimately fail to cut away the flesh from their hearts They follow many outward laws, but no one was able to love God or serve God with all their heart and soul. Sometimes Israel got to the point where they didn't care at all. They weren't even trying to keep God's righteous laws. And Jeremiah 4 verse 4 is a warning to rebellious Israel. God says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. He's getting to the heart again. What the physical sign pointed to O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. These are God's words to those who rebel against him flagrantly. And later in Jeremiah 9.25, goes, God goes even further and warns unfaithful Israel who boast in their physical heritage and outward obedience. They were boasting in the fact that, they, oh, we're the circumcised. We're the people of God. But God says this to them, who those who were living with hearts that were far from Him. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who, who are circumcised merely in the flesh. He says, I am tired of the physical outward activity that is separated from a heart that is close to God. Their, their hearts were far from God. Their outward activity looked good, but their hearts were far from Him. That's why in Deuteronomy, Moses goes on to tell the people that what they truly need what Israel truly needed was for God to do something to their hearts. Living for the glory of God is only possible if God first does something to the human heart which is corrupted by sin. Looking forward into his history, Moses says in Deuteronomy 30 that one day, he's looking forward. He's saying, Israel, follow God, serve Him. And he's saying, like, I know you're not going to do it. He even tells them that. And he says, one day, one day, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He's saying one day God is going to do this. Israel desperately needed God to turn their outward activity into the spiritual reality of their hearts. Because attempting to keep the laws of Moses never saved anyone from God's wrath against the rebellion in the human heart. Keeping laws cannot save you when your heart is not right and close to God. Physical circumcision never saved anyone from the wages of sin, which is eternal death. It never saved anyone because no one's heart was fully circumcised to God. No human being has ever been able to perfectly love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul. With this uncircumcised heart, all of us have profaned the name of God Almighty through our lives, and we have attempted to rob Him of His glory. That's what the Bible says sin is. It's to profane His name and to rob Him of the glory that He is rightfully due. We all stand condemned. Paul says in Romans 3, verses 19 through 20, that the law, all this, these these rules, these outward things that that Israel was supposed to do, the law was given so that every mouth may be stopped. It means that when you stand before the law and you compare yourself to it, your mouth goes closed. My mouth is closed and I am silent because I've got nothing to say for myself. The law was given so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable or guilty to God before God. Verse 20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The more the Israelites attempted to follow the law the more they saw how unworthy they they were to be called the children of God. God gave Abraham circumcision as a physical sign of his special covenant relationship with that nation But even this physical sign turns into a reminder of Israel's failure to have hearts that are circumcised, hearts that hate evil and love God wholly. And just in closing, really briefly, the good news (laughs) that is the bad news. The bad news is that no one could keep those laws, no one could have, no one can circumcise their hearts to God on their own, no one can do it. And following a bunch of laws didn't help. It actually just showed more and more how unclean we are before a holy God. But the good news is that God sent his son into this hopeless world. And his son keeps the covenant. Every human being stood condemned before God Almighty. But Jesus Christ was accepted. Every person had failed to love God every moment of every day, but Jesus Christ perfectly loved God with all his heart and with all his soul for every moment of his existence. John tells us Jesus could do this because he is the Son of God who has always been with God and that he is God. Jesus was no ordinary man. He is the God-man who came to earth, to live and to die in our place. And this is how God Almighty keeps His promises made in the Old Testament. God would fulfill every promise through His Son, Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, verse 9 through 15 tells us how God does this. Verse 9, For in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, He's saying he is God in the flesh. Verse ten. And you talking about the church, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Saying that in Jesus Christ, you are made complete, even if you're a Gentile, even if you're uncircumcised, even if you haven't attempted to follow the dietary laws. No, in Jesus Christ, in Him, you have been filled. You are complete in Him. Verse 11. In Jesus Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's spiritual. By putting off The body of the flesh, our wickedness, was cut off. How? How was this done? By the circumcision of Christ. What is he talking about here? The circumcision of Christ. I had to to really wrestle with this. Like, what is he talking about with the circumcision of Christ? And it becomes clear that the circumcision of Christ is talking about his crucifixion. Because remember, circumcision means to be cut off. And Christ on the cross was cut off as a dirty, unclean thing. He was nailed to the cross like a sinner, like someone who was dirty and guilty and condemned. He was the unclean piece of flesh that was cut off and cast aside. And when he says the circumcision of Christ is how we can now love God with all of our hearts and with all of our souls, it says that that happens because of the crucifixion of Christ. He was cut off for us. And then, verse 12, he says, he continues with a a similar picture, saying, having been buried with him in baptism, he's talking about that old wicked man has died now with Christ on the cross it has died and has been buried in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead that old man has died we have our old wicked man who loved this more world more than we loved God it has died it was buried and that's what baptism represents it represents the old man dying and then the new creation, the new man who is able to love God completely is now raised with him. It's the coming out of the water. That is the picture of being raised with Christ, this new creation. Verse 13 is going to restate this again. In other words, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, we were filled with wickedness but now we've died and God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, how does he do this? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God has canceled the record of our sin and with it the demand that we die, that we be cut off But can God just cancel it and say, no, just get rid of it? No. It says here, verse 14, this God set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Please hear this. Please know that if you repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Lord, then every sin you have ever committed in your past, before you were saved or during your Christian life, every sin you've ever committed or and every sin you will ever commit, it has been nailed to the cross. Your sin has already rested on On Jesus' shoulders as he hung on the cross. God's wrath against your sin has been paid. It is appeased. The suffering of his son was sufficient. And if we are lingering in still the guilt of sins of 20 years ago, sins we have confessed and turned over to the Lord, if we're still lingering in the guilt and wallowing in our shame, then we are not believing that Jesus was sufficient. We're not believing the Word of God that He says, My Son was enough. He was more than enough to pay for your sins. Let it go. Confess it. Turn from it. Give it to Jesus. He carried it on the cross for you. Don't cling to it anymore. Don't wallow in it. Jesus was sufficient. There is no more wrath for God to pour out on those who come in repentance and faith. There's no more wrath. Jesus Christ was cut off for you and for your sins. His wrath was poured out on his Son in full. God did this to show his great mercy and grace to the world. And Paul tells us at the end of this Passage in verse 15 of Colossians 2. Paul says that God also did this to triumph over Satan and his kingdom. Who would have kept us in slavery. Would have kept us in the bondage of guilt and shame and unworthiness. And just continuing the cycle of of endless sinning against God and being a rebel. Paul ends this passage by saying in verse 15. That God disarmed the rulers and authorities And put them to open shame. He's talking about the devil and his kingdom on this earth. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. He's talking about through the cross. God is pictured as a victorious king who comes and puts his foot on the neck of the rebel king who is fighting against him. God has put his foot on the neck of Satan and all of his minions, all of the demons who follow him, and he has triumphed over them through the cross, through the circumcision of his son, the cutting away of his son. The physical sign of circumcision was brought to an end that day by Jesus Christ on the cross because he ultimately fulfilled the sign by being cut off on the cross for all those who would repent and come by faith. And if you come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, then God says He will circumcise your heart. He will circumcise your heart and He will draw you to Him and He will make your desires align with His desires. That's what it means to have a circumcised heart. It's where your desires align with Him and he says to you if you come in faith he says my covenant is with you his covenant isn't with some other people group his covenant is with you as his people as sons of abraham let's pray together heavenly father thank you for your word lord i pray that my my attempt to show how wonderful and glorious and beautiful you are and how you are working in this world for your glory and for the good of your people, I pray that my stumbling attempt to show that that it would be used by the Spirit of God to cut into the depths of the heart so that if anyone sitting here today has not repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would see their condemned condition that they would see their guilt before you, that the only way to have peace with God, to be accepted and forgiven and and to receive the promise of life eternal, that the only way to receive that is through Jesus Christ, through bowing the knee and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is my King and my Lord. He is the Savior of the world and my only hope is in Him and the cross at Calvary. Lord, I thank you so much for this church, and I pray that we would all leave here rejoicing today and looking forward to seeing the act of, of of physically burying the old man today in baptism and seeing our sister raised to newness of life. That this outward action we do, looking to what you have done spiritually, remembering what you have done, that that would fill us with joy and hope, and that our our courage and our Our faith would be in you alone. Would you do this for your glory, for our good. Amen.